It is great to see you today. And uh, perhaps you know that uh, our sermon this morning marks the fourth and final installment in our series that we've titled Can of Worms. And uh, I imagine that there is no more thorny, controversial issue in our day than the one that we're going to be tackling today, a can of worms indeed. So we're going to open it up and see if Jesus will help us sort it out. And obviously, we better pray first. So let me pray for us. Precious Holy Spirit, I pray you'd help me say the things that you want said and not say the things that you do not want said. I want to be under your control today. Please minister to everyone who is here and exalt Jesus Christ and magnify his word. Pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, I remember sitting at a table in the school library when I was a freshman in high school. Across from me was a guy that I'd been striking up uh, a new friendship with. And so we were sitting there studying together. And out of the blue... He looks up at me, and in a low library voice, he said, Hey, Steve, what would you say if I told you that I'm homosexual? All righty then. I didn't know what to say. I was stunned. I'm sure my jaw dropped. And when I opened my mouth to respond, nothing came out. Uh, I was completely stunned and befuddled. Um, certainly I knew what homosexuality was, and I knew that homosexuals existed, but up to that point in my life, I had not personally encountered anyone who was oriented that way, or at least who admitted that to me. Um, You know, I didn't pause to think about the courage it probably took for him to divulge that to me. I certainly didn't pause to think about maybe how many rejections he had already experienced in his life when he told others. All I knew was that what he was telling me made me feel very uncomfortable in that moment. And truth be told, I ended up just kind of withdrawing from that conversation and eventually withdrawing from the friendship. I just couldn't understand why someone would be that way, and somehow it felt threatening to me. Today we're talking about the topic of homosexuality, same-sex attraction, domestic partners, gay marriage, and it's ironic that this week, homosexuality uh, has made, it, made its way once again back to the forefront of our national consciousness. It's ironic. You know, we planned this series out months and months ago, and, and you know what's happened in our country this week. So let's just acknowledge that this issue gives rise to a whole range of emotions, doesn't it? Like screaming and crying even. Uh, <laughs> You know, from the, from the fear and the discomfort that I felt in the library that day, when my friend divulged that to me, to anger and outrage and probably every emotion in between. Recently, I met a few times with a Christian brother who struggles with same-sex attraction. And he's been quite open with me about it, telling me how he struggles in his life to reconcile his deep faith in Jesus and commitment to God's Word with these inclinations that he feels in his own heart. You know, I think we make a mistake if we think that homosexuality is just something that's like out there in the world and not something that's also in here in the church. There are thousands of men and women who call themselves Bible-believing Christians who find that they are attracted to people of the same gender. What they choose to do with those inclinations is the subject of much struggle and much consternation and much internal debate and prayer. You need to know that I approach this issue today with much care and much prayer. I appreciate those of you who Facebooked me and emailed me and told me you were praying for me because you knew what I was going to be talking about. I'm grateful for that. And I've asked the Lord to help me to choose my words carefully and to be precise in what I say as I realize that words mean things and that my role as a pastor is, is a role of spiritual leadership, which means that people tend to take what I say seriously and uh, that I, you know, people view me as representing the church, and so I want to be precise in what I say. You also need to know I've submitted myself to our elders on this matter. I actually sent them my sermon this week and said, please review this and feed back to me any corrections you think should be made, and uh, I appreciate them doing that. I also feel I need to offer a few disclaimers right up front. I'm not an expert on this topic. I'm not a sociologist or a biologist or a geneticist. I don't have a PhD in this subject. I can't say I understand the causes 
of same-sex attraction. In fact, the more I read about it, the more I believe that no one really has a good grasp on the complex web of factors that lead to same-sex attraction. I can also tell you with a lot of confidence that all of your questions about this will not be answered today by the time we're done. (laughs) For one, I don't know all the answers. For two, even if I did, we'd be here until Friday because there's so many questions swirling around this subject. Beyond that, I'll admit to you that I don't have any close friends who are gay. So I'm coming at this from a position of relative ignorance when it comes to my personal experience. Having said all that, what I do have is the Word of God and a heart that loves people. And I would say that those are the two guiding principles that are going to inform and shape what I say today. A deep commitment to be faithful to the text of the Bible, of Scripture, and a pastoral heart that longs to see all people have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'll also tell you that very few of the things I'm going to say today are my own original thoughts. Sorry. I've borrowed a lot from others, from Bible scholars and theologians and pastors and writers. But the things I will say do reflect what I believe in the core of my being at this stage of my spiritual journey. They're convictions that I hold in my heart that I do believe have been framed and formed by my study of the Word of God. And that's how I've decided to present this to you today, is to lay out before you seven what I believe to be Bible-based convictions about God, marriage, homosexuality, and the gospel. And there is a study guide in your worship folder. You can pull that out, but I would encourage you mostly to listen and uh, not get fixated there on taking bunches of notes. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with God and marriage. So here's my first conviction, and it's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, I admit it. Marriage was God's invention. That's kind of foundational to everything I'm going to say. God invented marriage. It was defined by him in the Bible as the covenantal and sexual union of a man and a woman in a lifelong, exclusive commitment to each other as husband and wife with a view towards displaying Christ's covenant relationship with his bride purchased with his blood, the church. That's what I believe. This comes from four passages in Scripture where these truths are kind of woven together. And when you talk about marriage and God, you've got to go to Genesis, right? You've got to go back to the original design. And so if you go to Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God created humanity, it says, in two genders in such a way that they could come together and produce children and fill the earth. Then in Genesis 2, God links manhood and womanhood with marriage even more tightly. After the woman is created from Adam's side, he exclaims in Genesis 2.23, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and, his, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, God created humanity in two genders, male and female, so that there might be a one flesh sexual union and a covenant partnership between them with a view towards multiplying the human race and displaying God's covenant relationship with his people and later Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. Centuries later, when Jesus arrived on the scene, he picked up on that link and he wove these same two texts from Genesis together in a particular conversation he had that's recorded in Matthew 19, where he said, have you not read, read where? In Genesis. That he who created them from the beginning, male, excuse me, made them male and female. So he's quoting Genesis 127. And said, therefore a, man shall leave his, excuse me, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's quoting from Genesis 2.24. And his commentary, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, 1900 years before our culture started tinkering and tampering with the definition of marriage, Jesus told people to not separate What God had joined together, speaking of a man and a woman united in holy matrimony. 
One reason he felt so strongly about this was what marriage was originally intended to symbolize or to picture. Way back when God invented marriage, he had something in mind for marriage, a spiritual meaning or significance that Paul actually unfolds to us in Ephesians chapter 5. Listen. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, does it sound familiar? And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, from the very beginning, there's been a mysterious meaning attached to marriage, and Paul reveals it here, namely this, that God made human beings, male and female, with their distinctive feminine and masculine natures and their distinctive roles, so that as husband and wife, they could put on display together something of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. This means that the basic roles of husbands and wives are not interchangeable. The husband is to display the sacrificial love of Christ's headship, and the wife is to display the submissive role of Christ's bride, the church. The mystery of marriage is that God had this in mind, this dual display in mind, way back when he first created humans as male and female and joined them together in marriage as one flesh. Therefore, conviction number two There is no such thing as same-sex marriage. And it would be wise to not call it that. The point here is not not only that same-sex marriage shouldn't exist, but that it doesn't and can't by definition. Those who believe that God has spoken to us truthfully in His Word, the Bible, should not concede that a committed lifelong partnership of two men or two women is a marriage. It's not. God created marriage. He already defined what it is. And what God has joined together cannot be separated and still called marriage, not in God's eyes. Now, unless you think this is like a new and radical thought, this is what most people have thought for millennia. It's been commonly acknowledged, as Justice Scalia noted in his dissenting opinion this week, when speaking of the Defense of Marriage Act, he said, That act did no more than codify an aspect of marriage that had been unquestioned in our society for most of its existence, and indeed had been unquestioned in virtually all societies for virtually all of human history. In expressing his frustration with the majority opinion in the court's ruling, Scalia acknowledged that there is in our country a definite migration away from long-held beliefs that were tethered to something higher than current public opinion. I'll come back to that in a few moments. Conviction number three, and here's where I need to be very precise in choosing my words. Same-sex desires and same-sex orientation or attraction are part of humanity's broken, distorted, and disordered sexuality owing to God subjecting creation to futility on account of man's sin. Some of you are like, what? (laughs) Let me see if I can unfold that a little bit. You remember reading in your Bibles in Genesis 3 about that catastrophic moment when Adam and Eve, our ancestors, caved into temptation and sin, right? The effects of that sin on them and on the world begin to be described in Genesis 3 and 4 in what's often called the fall, the fall of man. Then they're illustrated in the the sin-saturated history recorded in the Old Testament, and then in human history all the way up to this very present day. The Bible tells us that sin resulted in a curse being placed upon the world. You've probably heard it said, we live in a sin-cursed world. It's not the way it was meant to be. It's not the way it will be one day. We live in a sin-cursed world. The Apostle Paul summed it up like this in Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility. There's a certain, certain emptiness about it, a certain frustration about it. Not willingly, but because of Him, this is God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation has been cursed because of sin. In verse 23 of that same chapter, we see that that part of creation that was subjected to death and futility was our own bodies, even the bodies of Christians. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's a description of believers, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So I join other Bible scholars in believing that same-sex desire, same-sex attraction, fall into this broad category of groaning. This struggle that presently exists living in a sin-cursed world as part of a sin-cursed race while we await the redemption of our bodies, which is coming one day. This means that I would put same-sex desire in the same category as all other dysfunctions of body, mind, and soul. And certainly if we tried to make a list of all the kinds of brokenness that afflict the human family, we would, that would be a long list, right? All of us are broken and dysfunctional in some way. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not okay and you're not okay. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I already knew that. <laughs> I knew that about you, but... Look, all of us are broken and dysfunctional in some way. All of us. Each of you sitting in this room today desires something that you should not want. Isn't that true? We all have those kinds of distorted desires. And we remain that way in this present life until Jesus returns and changes everything. So I believe there's a need here to make a careful distinction. All of our distorted desires, all of our brokenness is rooted in sin original sin from Adam that we inherited and our own sinful nature and impulses. So yes, I do believe it's accurate to say that same-sex desires are sinful in the sense that they are distorted by sin and are contrary to what God designed to be natural for humans. But to be caused by sin and rooted in sin does not make a sinful desire equal to sinning. So let me give you an analogy that my wife says is poor you be the judge. It does break down a little bit. But let's say, let's say that there arises in your heart a sudden desire to deal with the pressures of life by immersing yourself in chocolate. Okay? Wouldn't you agree with me that having that craving for chocolate, that desire, is one thing, and going out and buying 50 Butterfingers and consuming them is another thing? One is having a desire, the other is acting on that desire. We need to realize there's a distinction, an important distinction that we need to retain between sinful desires and sinful actions. Therefore, number four, conviction number four, it's homosexual activity, practice, not same-sex desire that is the focus of Paul's warning when he threatens exclusion from the kingdom of God in the Bible. And the key text here is 1 Corinthians 6, so follow along with me as I read, where he wrote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, those words, men who practice homosexuality, they jumped out at you, didn't they? That phrase is the translation of two Greek words which refer to the passive and active partners in gay sex. Focus here is not on same-sex desire or attraction. It's on same-sex practice. And notice, if you will, that homosexual behavior is not singled out for special condemnation but rather it's included with many other avenues of sinning, like idolatry, adultery, stealing, greed, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling. Does that surprise you? Does that bother you? I think we need to be very careful when constructing any sort of hierarchy of sins, don't you? Any kind of ranking system that rates certain sins as really, really, really bad, like the ones I don't do, and others as, you know, not quite that bad like the ones I actually do sometimes. 
I believe you'd be hard-pressed to make an airtight biblical case that homosexuality is the worst sin. In fact, I would say, judging from what Jesus got most riled up about, that if there is a hierarchy of sins, that at or near the top of that is human pride. We talked a lot about that. But now think about this. If the Bible's true, and if a lifestyle of homosexual behavior without any repentance or remorse is indeed evidence that someone is outside the kingdom of God and headed for judgment, which is what Paul says, then number five, it would undermine true love it would not be loving, and it would misrepresent the gospel of Jesus to approve of homosexual practice, either by being silent or by endorsing so-called same-sex marriage. Now, it's easy to be intimidated on this one because our world, the world that we live in, the culture we live in, is going to say exactly the opposite of what I just said. The world is going to say that warning people who practice homosexuality about judgment is Hateful. It's hate speech. It's not hateful. Now, some Christians are hateful, and their tone and manner is hateful. And, and this is not the way of Christ. But to confront sin and bring the good news of the gospel to bear upon sinful people is not hateful. It's actually a loving thing to do. It's hateful to not want people to address their sin and come to the cross and be saved. And so love warns, love pleads, love comes alongside and does everything it can to help a person truly live, to live forever in the kingdom of God with Christ. Number six, and this is one where we dig in a little bit. Follow me now. Increasingly widespread approval of and celebration of homosexual behavior is evidence that God's abandoning judgment is in effect on a nation or a people, making gospel proclamation by his people and gospel demonstration by his people even more critical. Now, you, you know, you can't give a sermon on the biblical view of homosexuality without talking about Romans chapter 1. I've been reading a very intriguing book by an author named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, who was a tenured professor at Syracuse in the late 90s, a very bright gal with a degree, a PhD in women's studies. She was an avowed lesbian, had a lesbian partner. She was a department chair, responsible for the curriculum development at Syracuse in, in her department that, at that time. She's also the faculty sponsor for several LGBT groups on campus. She was working on a project that was uh, a critique of the religious right. And so she was reading about them and interviewing spokespersons for the religious right. And she kept hearing people quote from the Bible. And she came to realize, if I'm going to speak with any authority on my opponents here, I'm going to have to get to know their book. So she started reading the Bible. Very dangerous thing to do. And she said that when she got to this passage, Romans chapter 1, her whole worldview started to come unraveled. Because in Romans 1, we have God's worldview, how God assesses mankind and history. I'm going to read this. It's a long passage. I want you to just listen to the word of God as I read Romans 1, beginning with verse 15. It's Paul speaking. It's a treatise on the gospel. He writes this, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now in verse 18, he's going to start talking about the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold it down. They push it down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. How does God respond to humanity's idolatry? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. It's like Paul has been swimming around in a cesspool and he's got to come up for air and give God a praise and he dives down again. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's interesting. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Here's a list of sins that are prevalent in a culture. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, finding new ways to sin, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They celebrate it in others. In this master treatise on the gospel, Paul lays out God's worldview. This is how God sees the world, how he sees humanity from his vantage point. And what God saw is that humanity on the whole had what? Rejected him. Paul shows that God revealed himself to humanity through creation in such a way that people could easily know that he exists and and know something about his power and his nature. Theologian Charles Hodge testified, God has never left himself without a witness. God has left his fingerprints everywhere in creation. But despite that, mankind suppressed the truth, believed a lie, and rejected God. Verse 21 declares how that got expressed. It says, Universally, mankind refuses to honor God for who he is and refuses to express gratefulness to God for all the good things that he has done. Verse 23 tells us, amazingly, that humanity thought so little about God that they they traded him. They traded God. Imagine that. God, we want your stuff, but we don't want you. Our race decided that we wanted a God that we liked better, a God we could get along with, a God who was more like us. You know, Voltaire jokingly said one time, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor. And it's true that mankind has created a God that is in our own image. Really, we've created gods, a whole pantheon of deities that we worship and bow down to and devote ourselves to and treasure above the one true God, and that's offensive to God. And so how how did God respond? Verse 24 tells us that when people reject God, God rejects them. And what we have is an example of what theologians would call the passive wrath of God being levied against a nation that has turned away from him. Notice the threefold progression of God's abandonment of a people who rebel against him. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. You feel it? God pulling back. Now there is an active wrath of God where he brings judgment to bear on a people or a situation. But this is the passive wrath of God. That's what's in view here. It's God letting go. It's God removing his hand of protection, lifting the umbrella of his protection, removing the restraining that he does against sin. You know that people are not as bad as they could be, in part because God holds it back, like a dam holding back the water in a reservoir. 
But when God begins to abandon a nation or a culture, he begins to pull back, to step away, and that restraining influence is lightened. John MacArthur writes this, when men abandon God, God begins to abandon them. And when God abandons men to their own devices, his divine protection is partially withdrawn. And when that occurs, men not only become more vulnerable to Satan, but they also suffer the destruction that their own sin works in and through them. It's as if God said, okay then, you don't want me? Then you won't have me. I'm pulling back. I'm letting you go. But get ready. Evil will ravage your society and rush over you like a tsunami and there will be no defense. Does that sound familiar? And you feel that in our country these days? I got to thinking about how humans think they're so smart, so wise. It seems so sophisticated, doesn't it? It seems so progressive to, to redefine marriage, for example. Humans, we think we're the masters of our fate. Our, de- our destiny belongs to us. We're free to do whatever we want, and we will not stand for anyone, not even God imposing any limits on our self-styled liberty. We're mesmerized by our own innovation. And like the old saying goes, humans have become a legend in their own mind. We are awesome. That's what humans think. Let us rise up and explore our freedoms and cast off the moors of a repressive puritanical era like marriage being only between a man and a woman. That is so 1800s. So archaic, so outdated. Thank God. No, thank us that we've become liberated from such idiocy. Maybe we'll even attain to the lofty heights of expanding the definition of marriage to include a man having many wives. Why not? How about men marrying boys? How about a woman and her beloved cat uniting in holy matrimony? Man has long had a love affair with his car, so how about bestowing spousal rights upon that cherished 67 Mustang sitting in your garage? There are no limits. We are ascending to Godhood. No one will stand in the way of our ultimate self-determination. You see, when the people in a culture reject God, all Hades is unleashed, morally speaking. Because God begins to abandon that culture, his His protection and his restraining influence begins to fade away and the full range of evil inclinations and moral depravity in the human heart begins to progressively be displayed. When we read through Romans 1, I know that you picked up on the fact that unrestrained homosexual behavior is part of that. You saw that, right? Women doing with women that which is unnatural, men doing things with men, you saw that. When Rosaria Butterfield saw Romans 1 and read those words, it cut her to the heart. It dawned on her that her uninhibited homosexual lifestyle and her militant advocacy of all things gay was actually evidence of her rejection of God. Placed her in opposition to God. on on the other side of the equation, and she knew it, and she felt it, and you say, what happened to her? You'll have to get her book and read it, and then you'll know the rest of the story. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and I've listed it for you as one of the resources on the back side of your your, uh, study guide. So you know what? Some people would read Romans 1 and see all that, those sins, you know, and they would say, yeah, those bad people doing all those horrible things. That's so horrible. I would never do that. Well, I want you to see how Paul opens up chapter 2 of Romans. Listen. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You say, well, I don't go out. I'm not involved homosexually in in practicing. Yeah, but do you give vent to the fleshly desires of your heart in any area? I mean, that's what that is. We know that the judgment of God, verse 2 says, falls rightly on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, Paul set a trap, didn't he? In pointing out the unrighteous badness of all those wicked people out in the world, he knew that all the good, upstanding, upright people would start to feel superior to those other lost souls. And so in chapter 2, he ambushes them, the self-righteous moralist, pointing out that he's under God's wrath too. Why? Because he's smugly putting himself in God's place as the judge of humanity. And he's being hypocritical in hiding or minimizing his own sin. In his pride, he's allowed his own heart to become hardened before God. We've talked about this a lot around here. Jesus revealed so clearly in the parable of the lost sons that there are actually two kinds of lostness, two ways to be far from God, unrighteous badness and self-righteous goodness. Never forget that. Never forget that. Both the rebellious prodigal son and the proud, dutiful older brother were estranged from the father, right? Jesus said that. In the same way, the flagrant homosexual who flaunts their lifestyle and the proud churchgoer who fancies himself superior to others while hiding secret sins in his own heart, both need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads me to my seventh conviction, which is this. The good news of the gospel is that God saves all sinners, heterosexual and homosexual, who repent of their sin, trust completely in Jesus' sacrifice for them, How does God do it? He does it by counting them righteous in Christ. He gives believers the very righteous record of Jesus and by helping them through his spirit to live lives pleasing to him in the midst of their disordered brokenness in this life. I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 6 again. It's a glorious gospel passage. Or do you not know, we read it before, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the heart of biblical Christianity. That's the essence of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Such were some of you. So there in the church in Corinth, there were Christians, believers, who had been fornicators and adulterers and thieves and drunkards and men who practiced homosexuality, but that was no longer their identity. That's who they used to be. Well, what changed? Well, he says, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They turned from their sin, repented, put their faith in Jesus. It says they were washed a great word, isn't it? Last night I was preaching on this when that storm came in, and the rain was so loud on the roof. I mean, I could barely hear myself speak, but it came in at just the right time when I said, they were washed, kind of like the rain is washing our cars right now, cleaning them all up. This is what the blood of Jesus Christ does. It cleanses, it washes our sins away in the sight of God, our past with all of its ugliness and sin. And it says they were sanctified. That means God set them apart for himself and gave them his spirit. The spirit, the Holy Spirit who begins to work in believers a power for holiness that will swallow up distorted desires in something more beautiful and more desirable so that we can walk in a way pleasing to God even in the midst of our brokenness. Never forget that the heart of Christianity is that God saves repenting sinners through the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The best news in all the world is that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, so that even the most wicked sexual offender, homosexual or heterosexual, can be rescued from their path of destruction, washed, justified, sanctified, given a place in God's kingdom, and adopted into the family of God. You are sitting next to a bunch of people whose past is ugly and sinful 
Everybody has their sins in their past, every single one of us. Whether it's a flagrant homosexual lifestyle or proud arrogance of someone raised in church. Thank God for the gospel. Too many followers of Jesus, in my opinion, seem content to just kind of stand back and lament the state of our country. Oh, it's getting so bad. Oh, it's getting worse by the day. Lamenting the moral decay. Being critical of deviant lifestyles. I admit it's easy to get disheartened and angry, but let us always remember and forever proclaim the message that Jesus Christ came to redeem lost sinners, sinners like you and like me. And the most arrogant, militant, homosexual advocate of gay rights and gay marriage can be saved by Jesus. I'll never forget that. And that, that ought to underlie all of our conversations about this subject, I think. About a year ago, I received a call from a lady who was inquiring about our church here. And uh, she said, hey, I'm new in the community and I'm looking for a church. I've actually been out to New Life uh, several times, but I have some questions about New Life. She said, I really like what I've experienced so far. And so I said, yeah, I talk to people all the time about our church, so fire away. What, what questions do you have? I'd be glad to try to tackle them. And she said, well, my first question is, I'd like to know if New Life is open and affirming of gay people. And I thought, all righty then. <laughs> kind of threw me a little bit. So I said, well, that's a, that's a fair question. Why do you ask? And she said, well, I am a lesbian, and my partner and I are Christians, and we want to find a church that will welcome us and be supportive of who we are. And she said, you should know that we're not the kind of Christians who just want to sit back and be spectators. We like to be involved in different ministries that serve the church and serve the community. So could we count on that at New Life? Now, you need to know that seminary was woefully inadequate. <laughs> Never did I have a professor address this matter of how do you talk to a lesbian Christian who wants to be involved in your church. It just never came up at all. This lady was sharp. She was articulate. She was informed. She knew me. She knew stuff about me. She knew her stuff. She asked the question. So I responded by saying something like this. As best I can recall, this is what I said. I said, well, ma'am, first of all, thanks for your call. Thanks for inquiring about New Life. I can tell that you take your search for a home church very seriously, and I wish more people did that, took the time that you're taking. You need to know that New Life is not a perfect church. We have our flaws. We have our faults. You should also know that we are laser-focused on the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message that God wants to save sinful people and reconcile them to himself, all kinds of sinful people. So we're a church that's decided to be open and welcoming to people of all genders, of all colors, of all ethnicities, of all backgrounds, and of all sexual orientations, regardless of status or net worth or anything else. We believe that God wants all people to be saved. And I said, what I mean by saying that we are open and welcoming is that anyone is welcome to attend our worship services, just like you've been doing. We believe all people need to be in an environment of worship and sit under the teaching of God's Word. So yes, please come, please continue coming and meeting our people and learning and growing. I said, as far as serving in a ministry here, we believe that serving our Lord in the church is a high calling and a privilege, and at New Life, we reserve most ministry roles here for those who are in a covenant relationship with the rest of the New Life family, what a lot of churches call membership. For us, I said, membership means that you've given testimony of being a, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. You've been baptized by immersion. You align with our statement of faith. And you voluntarily place yourself under the spiritual authority and care of our elders and pastors and small group leaders here in this church. It also means you're willing to connect to a small group, to support the church through financial giving, and to serve in a ministry. So if you would like to serve at New Life in a ministry, you'd first need to be a member of New Life. She said, well, my partner and I are lesbian Christians. Would we be allowed to become members? So since she was bold enough to bring it up, I was bold enough to ask the clarifying question. 
Well, we are anchored to the Bible as our sole guide for faith and practice. We cannot in good conscience go against something that's clearly stated in the Bible. We do see a distinction between people who have same-sex attraction but restrain those impulses and live a celibate life. And then those, on the other hand, who are practicing homosexuals who live an openly gay lifestyle and are involved sexually, which of those two categories would you place yourself in? She didn't miss a beat. She said, my partner and I live together and we're, we're involved sexually. We are full-blown in the lifestyle. And so I replied, oh, I, I really appreciate your honesty. That's rare these days. Because our primary allegiance is to Jesus and his word, I'd have to say to you that until you choose to repent of this sinful lifestyle, we could not in good conscience receive you into membership at New Life. I said, in fact, during your membership interview here, if you go through the Discover New Life class, there will be an interview, and during that interview with Pastor Claude or Pastor Jay or Bill or Lori or Cindy or myself, you will be asked if there is any habit or practice in your life that doesn't line up with the gospel And since you're an honest person, you'd have to say that there was, right? She said, well, yeah, I guess so. I said, well, we believe serving is a privilege of membership. And so that would be out of reach for you here until you address the sinful lifestyle issue. But I want to be clear that you are more than welcome to continue attending worship services at New Life. I said, I hope that you will continue, and I'd love to keep this conversation going, if you're willing. Well, I think by that point, she pretty much had the answer to her main question, and the phone conversation ended. I tell you about that conversation for several reasons. One, I wanted you to know our stance here on receiving people into membership, particularly with regard to professing Christians who are engaged in lifestyles that are contrary to the the godly pattern of conduct that's laid out in Scripture. I also shared it with you because I wanted you to sense my tone of respect for this woman. I did not say to her, you filthy sinner, you are rotten to the core, it's you and people like you that are the reason for the mess that we're in in this country, never set foot in our church again, and say any of that. See, I believe that all people are created in the image of God. And as a result, all people have dignity and worth and value in God's sight, regardless of their lifestyle. Sure, the image of God has been marred, it's been distorted. The imago Dei, as it's called, is marred in us and distorted by sin, but it's true of all of us. And Jesus is on a mission, isn't he, to restore that image of God in those who will trust him and believe in him. I think Jesus would want his people to treat all people with respect And with dignity, even when we're confronting them regarding their sin, which we should do, especially if they call themselves followers of Christ. And then I share it with you because I wanted you to feel my discomfort at being thrown into a conversation with someone whose lifestyle I don't really understand. Just rehearsing the conversation with you stirs up some shame in me because I realize I don't have any close gay friends. I only have a few acquaintances who are gay. And truth be told, in my flesh, I'm more prone to just kind of dismiss this whole thing altogether and not want to deal with it. That's just me. But God's working in my heart too in this matter. And I sense a growing desire to be in an ongoing conversation with some people with same-sex attraction, to help me understand it better, both professing believers and non-Christians, maybe those who struggle with what they find in their hearts. And so I would make this offer. If you are one who would be interested in that, in an ongoing conversation with me and perhaps a couple other people, I've put my email address there on the back side of your study guide. Shoot me an email and uh, we'll see what we can set up. I would invite that conversation. I can tell you this. I read a lot of stories these past few weeks of people with with same-sex inclinations who repented of their sin, came to Christ, and began to see Jesus transform their lives. In nearly every case, there was a common thread. You know what it was? A loving community of Christian believers 
who enfolded that person in, in a spirit of grace, who affirmed them while not condoning their sin, who hung in there with them patiently, guiding them, discipling them, listening to them, helping them through their process of change, relying on the spirit and the word to work together in that person to bring about change. In almost every story of transformation, that was a common denominator. And I read those stories and I thought, let's be a church like that. Amen? I mean, let's be a church like that. I mean, the truth is, we all have experienced the grace of Christ who addressed our sins, who forgave us, who was patient with us. Let's extend that same grace to others. You know, it's really, really, really easy in this world to divide the world up into two categories, those bad people out there who do all that terrible stuff and then all the good people like me and my friends. And This is not really a biblical worldview, is it? Well, I'm done. We're out of time. I know all your questions haven't been answered. Sorry. I uh, urge you to study this more on your own. I've listed some resources on the back of your study guide there, some books. There's a great YouTube video by a professor named Christopher Yuan under the header of Gideon's International. Great, great story that I encourage you to listen to. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield's book is titled Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into the Christian Faith. And it's just the raw, real stuff of Christian conversion. It's really, really good. I'll close with this. May our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, give us his discerning wisdom as we seek both to stay anchored to the timeless truths of the Word of God while relating to people that we might differ with in a way that truly reflects his love for the whole world. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit. I pray that I've said only what you wanted said this morning. And um, Lord, I pray that the spirit of God would be active in all of us, opening our eyes to truth, giving us that gift of repentance that we read about, making us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. May this church truly be a grace place where people with all stripes of sin can come and know they're going to be welcomed into this worship time where they will hear the word of God. And as we all sit under the teaching of your word, change us, transform us into the image of Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody take a deep breath. Exhale. Okay. Let's all stand together. Uh, we're going to worship the Lord. Our prayer partners are here to pray with you. I don't know how this teaching intersects with your life. Maybe you have uh, gay friends, family members. I know that's the case for a number of you. Uh, maybe you're seeking to minister to people in this situation. Maybe you've been convicted of your own judgmentalism towards them. However this intersects your life, these folks would love to pray with you as we worship. Let's worship together.